Welcome to this second episode of a Coffee Room Chat in ENT, a collaboration between the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and ENT UK. Today's episode comes from British Rhinological Society and we'll be discussing the management of frontal sinusitis. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Caroline Smith, who's a rhinologist in Northern Ireland, and Archana Jayswell, who is a rhinologist from Manchester Royal Infirmary in England. They'll be discussing the difficult problem of frontal sinusitis, particularly the complications that you get from it, including Pott's puffy tumour, how to manage the patient in terms of microbiology with neurosurgery when needed, but also what surgical approach to use. First voice that you're going to hear will be Caroline Smith, We'll start by describing a recent case. A patient, late 50s, male, um, presenting with acutely unwell, with headache, paraxia, and some forehead swelling. Um, of relevance, this patient has a background of chronic rhinosinusitis and had had a mini fest elsewhere. Um, the appearance was typical of a POTS puffy tumour or a subperiosteal abscess with osteomyelitis. Um, so just to have a discussion about how to approach a patient like this um, and, you know, acutely, what's the first thing you would okay. do? You know, um, I guess we've always got to be emergency safe. So if this is a new presentation, patient attends either the emergency department uh, or drops into his GP service, uh, with these symptoms, we would obviously want to admit them. Um, I would be worried that they may either have acute frontal sinusitis with a secondary um, subperiosteal collection or chronic rhinosinusitis, which given the background of a mini fez somewhere else, um, and then more of a chronic osteomyelitic picture, which is different to an acute frontal sinusitis picture with secondary saturation um, and a collection in the subperiosteal space on the affected side or on both sides, as happens. Um, the other thing in these patients I would worry about is propagation of infection elsewhere. So if it is already in the subperiosteal space, I would be worried about orbital extension and intracranial extension. So this patient really needs a full comprehensive assessment, which includes uh, a good history, focusing on their sinonasal disease, the length of symptoms, the treatment they've had so far, why they had surgery, where they've had surgery, the extent of surgery, what their long-term treatment is, if they've had any treatment already in this visit. And then I'd want to follow that up uh, with a really good assessment, which would include assessment um, not only of the nasal cavity, including rigid or flexible nasoendoscopy following decongestion, but also assessment of the orbit, the cranial nerves, and their focal and, and looking for any focal neurology. I would want to admit the patient uh, into my service. Um, we would start the patient on broad spectrum antibiotics once we had obtained blood cultures, 
blood test for a full blood count, CRP, um, just so we knew what their inflammatory markers were doing. Um, we'd also, uh, at this stage, we, we would want a CT scan. So you'd want a fine cut CT scan of the paranasal sinuses and anterior skull base, uh, and you'd want to view the images in a triplanar view. Given that it's a subperiosteal collection, I'd be thinking very early about conjunct, sort of um, also having um, an MRI scan with, with contrast. And the reason for that is that if you have one complication, your risk of a second is almost 30%. And so if you think of it early, you're quite likely to pick up things like meningeal enhancement or a small intracranial collection quite early in, in the patient's journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's very, very comprehensive <laughs> to a patient like this and highly appropriate. So with this patient, um, you talked about IV antibiotics. Would you involve microbiology with that or broad spectrum, what would you be thinking about? Would you be thinking sort of keftriaxone or clav, or what do you normally start these patients on? You know, it depends on the history. And with POTS puppy, um, you see two, almost two subgroups. You either have the young adults who have been chorizal for a few days, they've had an upper respiratory tract infection, they might have single sinus discomfort over the affected forehead, and then 48 hours later, you'll see a subperiosteal collection. And that points towards acute rhinosinusitis. And we know that, you know, community acquired acute rhinosinusitis for the vast majority of patients is going to be your gram positive um, aerobic bugs, things like Haemophilus influenzae, strep pneumonia, Morexella catarralis. So these are these respond incredibly well um, to penicillins. If, if you don't have a penicillin, um, a beta-lactamase producing bug. So, you know, there is 25% of anaerobic activity, especially once it suppurates. So you want something that's going to cover the, the aerobes, so a penicillin, and, and have some anaerobic cover. So one of the simplest antibiotics would probably be to add in a penicillin with clavulonic acid, so something like coamoxiclav. That would have really good sort of broad spectrum cover and would be a good first line entry point antibiotic. I would like to do both blood cultures and my, a microscopy swab uh, from the nose very early before I start empirical therapy with the coamoxiclav, just so we can, within 48 hours, be guided by sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Involving our microbiology colleagues early is really good practice um, because on the culture, if we grow a beta-lactamase resistant bug um, or an anaerobe, then you start to think of um, alternate options, especially with the anaerobes. So I'm going to move you know, to the other picture here just because we're talking about anaerobes. So if we talk about, um, you know, the slightly older patient, someone in their 60s, 70s, they've had a headache for a few weeks or discomfort around the orbit. And then suddenly they've either developed um, a subperiosteal collection or a small fistula, as you might see in some instances. You, you're already worried about chronic, chronic sinusitis. 
And the, the bugs that we find in the frontal sinus are very similar, actually, to the bugs that we find in the maxillary sinus and chronic maxillary sinusitis. So lots now you get sort of 75% anaerobic presence. And even the aerobes um, that you get, they're, um, they're gram negatives. So you've now moved away. So you have things like pseudomonas coming in, staph aureus. Um, and, and so the sort of antibiotic you want to give changes. Mm-hmm. You could still give coamoxiclav first, first line. But if they are resistant and the likelihood of that is really high, then your microbiologist might suggest something like a second generation Keplosporin, like Kefuroxime, especially if you've got intracranial involvement. But these days, a lot of our patients are getting put on fourth generation Keplosporins, like the Miripenem or Mm -hmm. Imipenem. Um, And then you could combine. The other combination that actually we use quite a lot is things like the quinolones, the newer quinolones, moxifloxacin, um, and they can be com- combined with things like clindamycin, and that would have quite nice cover. But, you know, the microbiologists are here to help and guide, and culture-specific treatment is almost the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this man was was examined, had a swab, mucopus, and, and started on coamoxiclav. Um, would you... Uh, routinely in a patient like this start them in on neuro observations when they're admitted or would that just depend on their presentation and their history I think it would I probably would put them on neuro ops you know keeping in mind 30 percent if you have one complication a third of patients will have a second one and you know where is it going to be it's either going to be in the orbit which you'll see or in the intracranial space which you might not see especially if it's um a bit more of a chronic history. So I think it's easy enough to put them on two hourly neurops. You can always start stop them when they've got a normal C- CT slash MRI scan with contrast. Yeah. Um, but it's good first line. Just, you know, if you're going to admit them and you're worried about it, it's just good practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'd say in the same breath, if they had any eye signs, I'd also have them on sort of two hourly IOPS. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, this patient ended up getting a CT scan. And this showed widespread sinus changes, you know, a pacification, but particularly in the frontal sinus, it showed bilateral chronic changes. Mm-hmm. And by chronic changes, I mean those osteotic neo-osteogenesis within the frontal sinus and, um, you know, some bony erosion where this pots puffy tumor or subperiosteal abscess is present. So it looks like this is more of a chronic picture. Um is there anything you want to comment on looking at scans and how to to pick out those acute presentations versus the acute on chronic presentations? Yeah, do you know, the acute ones tend to have healthy paranasal sinuses prior to this happening. Um, so you can you may see unilateral or bilateral opacity of their paranasal sinuses. It may be focused within one sinus or pan sinus disease. You might have air bubbles, which is what you see in acute infections. Um, and then you may have some bony dehiscence, whether it's between the orbit and the intranasal space or um, 
you know, the frontal table may be eroded if this is a POTS puppy specifically, but they tend not to have any chronic changes. They're not going to have chronic um, sort of new bone formation or that sclerotic change or the osteomyelitis of the frontal, um, of both the frontal bone tables. You, won't, you shouldn't see that chronic change. Um, and sometimes chronic disease in the frontal sinus will also get the frontal sinus to start to auto obliterate. Mm-hmm. So you, what you get is these really unhealthy looking, mo- almost mothy sinuses. So you'll have pneumatization, perhaps of said sinus, but then you may have areas where it's already started to auto obliterate and you've got disease lateral to that auto obliteration. Um, you might also have this sort of really unhealthy looking um, anterior and posterior table. Um, and that's that's that tip. That's the typical change that you'll see in someone who's had this chronic uh, disease for a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, he went on for an MRI scan, which he also mentioned is important to get in these patients to look for any um, uh, secondary complication and particularly intracranial involvement. And actually, it did show a small subdural collection. Um, so obviously, in this case, you want to involve your neurosurgeons. Um, particularly if you're in a DGH, this is the point that you're thinking about transferring to tertiary care. And um, if you haven't already done that, but uh, neurosurgery, which is not uncommon, don't think it's big enough to drain. Um, And they're happy to leave it to us um, with a follow up MRI in a few days. Um, But with this patient, they're obviously on their IV antibiotics. Then it comes on to surgical management from an ENT point of view. You know, what are we going to do? Is it going to be nothing and see how he gets on? Is it going to be some minimal um, frontal sinus trephines and washouts, MMAs? Is it going to be more formalised frontal sinus surgery, something more extensive? Um, And what are the pros and cons of of those three options? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting case, this. If you're in a smaller unit, and you've got a patient with chronic disease who now has two complications by the sounds of things, an intracranial one, although not big enough for a craniotomy and washout, and an extracranial one with collection into the subperiosteal space uh, of the forehead, then you you have to wash the pus out of that sinus um, to relieve the pressure in the sinus, and also to irrigate the sinus. And the extent of surgery, I think, depends on your expertise or the expertise of your colleagues at the time dealing with the case. We've got to do safe surgery. Um, And perhaps in the most acute setting, the safest thing would be to (coughs) open the downstream sinuses, such as the maxillary sinus and the anterior ethmoid, just so that frontal sinus can drain better. So a really good unksonectomy and clearance of the bulla ethmoidalis in most patients is enough to allow decompression of that frontal sinus. Mm-hmm. I would certainly combine it um, with a mini trifine because you want to you want to actually you want to get some of that pus out. You know, it may be, if this is chronic, it may be that actually flat frontal outflow is really obstructed. Mm-hmm. And and that stuff's not going to go anywhere other than the intracranial space. 
So mm -hmm. you want to relieve the pressure, you want to wash the pus out, you want to send a sample off. You might also at that time think of leaving a little corrugated drain in or a small cannula um, and some of the mini trephine metronic kits, if, that, if you're fortunate to have one, have a small cannula that you can suture in and you can just irrigate steroid and saline on the ward for a couple of days um, yeah. to them. Yeah. And don't forget, if you're going to make a little brow incision uh, to wash the sinus out, just make sure you also wash all that still collection underneath the skin. Because mm -hmm. um, that's what's what's giving them the symptoms in the first place. And that in most patients combined with um, broad spectrum antibiotics or micro or microscopy assisted antibiotics um, should improve the acute situation, I, mm -hmm. I feel. Yeah. What, what did you guys do? What was your management? Yeah, yeah so that was the approach was uh, frontal to refine and wash out. And as you know, in these cases, they're always so inflamed. It's full yeah. of pus. It bleeds. And so trying to do anything more significant than that is actually really difficult. Even well, for me as a fairly new consultant post rhinology fellowship, that is still a, that's quite difficult when it's very bloody and swollen and edematous and um the frontal define can really help with that actually when you flush it through and you can make sure you're where you think you are um mm. so that was what we did um what about sort of further did he, down get better? he did he did over time um actually you did mention about the brow incision and draining i've i've heard various people saying different things about pots puffy sort of either leaving alone other people tunneling under the skin of the forehead to drain some of the pus some people have said about making an incision over the top of it, but I would worry about a fistula in that. Um, have you sort of done all three or what practice have you seen in the past? You know, I've made a small brow, medial brow incision. Um, I've drilled directly into where the floor transitions into the anterior wall of the sinus based on um, CT scan bindings of the size of the sinus. So I know where I'm going in. Um, and then I've irrigated and left a little cannula in. And at the same time, just through that incision, it's a, the minute you make that incision, all the pus just flows out of, you know, as, as it does with the mastoid. It's mm -hmm. not so dissimilar. You know, when you when you incise through the periosteum, all the pus just drains out. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it does it in this too. I've, no, I've not gone chasing it. And I certainly haven't made distal secondary incisions. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wouldn't have much experience of that. Okay, that's great. Um, so he's improving. He's been in for 10 days, IV antibiotics, had his surgery, and everything is improving. Pyrexia is settled. Bloods are heading in the right direction. What about duration of antibiotics? Um, in your experience, I've always mm -hmm. sort of opted for the kind of six weeks Again, yeah, sometimes guided you know, by microbiology. It's a straightforward sort of subperiosteal collection following an acute upper respiratory tract infection in a younger person with no comorbidities. Once the pus is drained, and you know they don't need six weeks of antibiotics, mm -hmm. they probably need IV antibiotics in hospital for about four or five days until everything is in, is better with mm -hmm. with clinic follow up and tablet antibiotics. I'd say for up to ten days, but these patients, these chronic patients who clearly have skull-based osteomyelitis mm -hmm. um, and now an intracranial infection 
it's very different. Um, this is an MDT decision that needs to be taken in conjunction with your neurosurgery colleagues, because really that is the biggest concern here, that they have an intracranial collection that needs to resolve and microbiology. And in our department, um, these patients can have antibiotics anywhere from six weeks until all their intracranial sepsis has improved on sequential MRI scan. They have they have regular MRI scans, initially weekly and then monthly. So they can be on antibiotics at home for months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they respond really well. And their intracranial collection, I mean, needs really close surveillance so mm-hmm. that the abscess intracranially is not growing in size or causing any mass effect or compression or hydrocephalus. Um, but in the same breath, um, you want the, the skull-based osteomyelitic changes of the bone to improve. Otherwise, you're just, you're just going to get suppuration at a different site. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. So for, for this patient, um, what's your feelings on delayed, further, more extensive surgery? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's obviously, without the scans, it's hard to say, but there's obviously something that has caused him to have chronic frontal sinus disease in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and has he got, you know, has he got chronic rhinosinusitis that's just never been managed properly? Um, and I guess there is a role for a period of um, maximal medical therapy, which would include not only the IV and oral antibiotics, but also uh, topical decongestants in the acute setting whilst in hospital, topical intranasal corticosteroid drops, and my preference is betamethasone drops, uh, where they use two drops three times a day for at least six weeks, um, and and flushes. You want to be getting all of that mucoid or pustule discharge out of the sinonasal space. You've got the luxury here in that you're you're probably going to be performing surveillance MRI scan on this patient. So you can see evolution of disease in response to maximal medical therapy. In our practice, we feel that if patients have an intracranial complication from frontal sinusitis, there is certainly a role in draining that frontal sinus formally. Not in the acute setting, you're going to cause, or you you could potentially cause quite a lot of stenosis in that region. Um, But in a delayed fashion, um, there's certainly the role of at least discussing the option with the patient. Um, You know, what's to say that, and even even in acute um, frontal sinusitis, I would always have that discussion if they've had an intracranial complication from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the acute picture, in a younger patient, and I have a few of these, where they've developed awful intracranial sepsis, that I do see them back in clinic when they're better um, from the intracranial sepsis and say, you know, would you like to have definitive surgery that decreases the chance of this happening again? And, you know, we can never mitigate the risk of it happening again. And we could cause in the same breath a complication from the surgery when they may never get it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is an honest discussion 
to be had with the patient and their family if, if they choose to bring loved ones along. Um, and then it allows the patient to make an informed choice. In the patients who have chronic disease, it's a different picture. They have chronic CRS. I would see what, this, what the response to maximal medical therapy is. Um, but I, it, it sounds very much like this chap is going to head towards more definitive treatment, especially to address frontal outflow, um, because it's probably still blocked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something has caused the problem in the first place. And unless you address it, it'll just grumble on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, with this kind of picture, my kind of preferred approach would probably be a delayed full house fest and a frontal drill out or a modified little throb. Um, and by full house fest, we mean, you know, opening each sinus. So that's, you've probably already, well, in this case, you know, unsynectomy, MMA, anterior ethmoid's already been done, but also talking about posterior ethmoidectomy, sphenoidotomy mm -hmm. and a frontal sinusotomy or modified lothrop, you know, for those chronic cases, osteotic changes where you know it's going to stenose, you want to get as wide an opening as possible to try and prevent this blocking again and him ending up in the same scenario. So that would be the plan for him. But, you know, leading, leading on to more generally about frontal sinus surgery and what, you know, how do you decide extent? And, you know, obviously that's going to depend on the clinical picture, but, you know, draft one, draft 2A or 2B, draft three. Um, and I think really our take home messages are, you know, not to underestimate the complications of, of sinusitis because it can become very serious and to manage these people um, quickly and with appropriate imaging and involvement of specialties um, like neurosurgery, ophthalmology, you know, um, as appropriate, um, as, as indicated. Yes. Um, surgical approaches we've we've covered that as well and and how to choose what to think about when you are choosing and particularly you know this is a complex area speak to colleagues ask for help plan and make sure you have the equipment that you need so thank you very much to both Archana Jayswell and Caroline Smith for that really comprehensive run through of how to manage frontal sinusitis in the acute setting. I hope that you'll join us next week when our podcast will be all about day case head and neck surgery. Uh, and that will be from Shane Lester uh, and Jay Manick. So join us then. <laughs>